Philippians chapter 1 then. Philippians chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse number 12. Philippians chapter 1. As is always the case, if you don't have a Bible, shame on you. But if you don't have one, there's one in front of you that you're welcome to use and even take. If you really don't have a Bible and you really need one, please take that as our gift to you. But uh, you can follow along there. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, our faith does not rest on just the ideas and thoughts and inventions of men. We're thankful, Lord, that we have the Bible, your holy, inspired, inerrant, perfect word. We're thankful, Lord, that you gave it in the first place. You breathed it into existence through your Holy Spirit and have preserved it down through the ages so that it is exactly what you want us to know and understand. And I pray today as we look at this little letter to the Philippians and these few short verses from that letter that you'll speak to our hearts. May we know that these were not just the words of Paul, but they are your words. May we recognize that what they had to say to the Philippians, they have to say to us. And I pray, Father, that we would respond as we ought to. That if we need to make changes in our life because of what we hear here, that we do it. If we've never responded to the gospel in the first place, we've never been saved, I pray we do it this day. I pray as we as Christians would be encouraged and strengthened and convicted by the things that we see here in this wonderful Apostle Paul. Uh, Help us, Father, to uh, be made better, be made more like our our Lord Jesus Christ as a result of what we see and hear here. And I pray for myself. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord God, to have... Nothing in me that would hinder my effectiveness. Help me, Lord, to say the things I ought to with all boldness and clarity. Help me, Lord God, to say nothing else. And when it's all over, I pray people don't see me. I pray they see only my Lord. So bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've mentioned over the last couple of weeks from this letter to the Philippians, Epaphroditus had come from Philippi and had come to Paul in prison carrying support from the Christians there in Philippi. That support no doubt included financial support. He alludes to that later on in the letter. It also no doubt included uh, words of encouragement and perhaps concern. It's somewhat implied in this passage that the Philippians were worried about Paul, that he might be discouraged by his circumstances, his imprisonment. He seems here to be responding to such concern. But he wasn't discouraged. And as a matter of fact, he was rejoicing because God was advancing his gospel 
even even through what Paul was going through. It's also possible that the Philippians feared not his personal discouragement, but rather they were more afraid of the gospel being hindered, that maybe the gospel wasn't going forth, that maybe it had been stopped and hindered by his imprisonment. And that, that concern he shot down also in this passage. The gospel was not spreading less because of his imprisonment. It was spreading more. And that's amazing. I want us to notice from these seven short verses that Paul spoke of four, four basic things. He spoke of gospel opportunity. He spoke of gospel influence. He made the point that the gospel is the thing. And then he hammered it home. The gospel is everything. And so if you're taking notes this morning, that's where we're going to go. Gospel opportunity, gospel influence. The gospel is the thing. And the gospel is the only thing. First of all, look at verses 12 through 13, and let's notice gospel opportunity. Paul said in these verses, my circumstances, while not good, are furthering the gospel. I think it's kind of amusing that Paul almost casually mentions his situation in verse number 12 in the little phrase, the things which happened to me. He says, now the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, that little phrase, the things which happened to me, is referring to the entirety of Acts chapter 21 verses, or 21 through 28, the last eight chapters of the book of Acts. And if you think about what happened there, he was referring to his being arrested in the temple, his nearly being beaten to death in an ensuing riot. He was referring to his trials before the Sanhedrin. He was referring to a very real threat posed by a group of crackpots that bound themselves together under a curse uh, to, to murder him. He was referring to his trials before Felix and Festus and Agrippa, his appeal to be tried by Caesar. He was referring to his difficult voyage to Rome that ended in shipwreck after a terrible storm at sea, to three months shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and then to his arrival in Rome, where he was immediately thrown into prison and where he was currently incarcerated. That's what he was talking about when he said the things which have happened to me. And he wrote that all of those things were not hindrances to the gospel at all, but rather opportunities for the gospel to spread. He was at this time imprisoned. We believe he was still imprisoned in a house, which is the way Acts chapter 28 ends. But he had a Roman guard chained to his wrist at all times. Referred to here as the palace guard. And this palace guard was hearing the gospel. And they were at least partially responsible for spreading it throughout the Roman Empire. Imagine, imagine just for a moment, being chained to Paul's wrist for an entire shift. I, I can't fathom this. The shifts changed every six hours, is what we're told. And so that meant that every day, four guards were chained to the Apostle Paul's wrist. Every minute to Paul, every minute to the greatest soul winner that has ever lived on the face of the earth, every minute. Now, these guards were a very special group of men. If, if I understand it correctly, uh, they're referred to here as the palace guard. Some translations refer to them as the praetorian guard. Both of those are correct. They were a group which uh, one man described as this. He, he said this about him. He said, this elite group of soldiers was begun by Augustus Caesar, but was finally concentrated in Rome by Tiberius Caesar. 
they were, uh, number one, all of the same rank. They were all centurions. Number two, they received double pay. Number three, they had special privileges. And number four, they became so powerful that their choice for emperor was always honored. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. If, if the source I read is correct, then that's a very fascinating thing. Who's going to be emperor next? Well, let's see who the palace guard says is going to be emperor next, because whoever they say is who's going to be. This was a powerful group of people. Think of it. Paul had access to and influence over these highly influential and powerful men simply because he was chained to one of them 24 hours a day. Through them, he had access to the highest levels of government. How else would he have gotten such access? He had access to the highest levels of Roman society, his imprisonment, his chains, his suffering, while seeming to silence him, actually caused his gospel message to spread even further. He described this thing. He described this amazing influence, maybe not of this exact thing, but uh, the same concept. He described in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he said to Timothy, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not changed. We see it throughout the New Testament. Circumstances which to our eyes ought to hinder the spread of the gospel actually set it ablaze. Think of Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Stephen preached only one sermon that we have record of in Acts chapter 7. And then he was stoned to death. It would seem to many that his suffering was for little, that his ministry was terribly cut short, And yet Stephen's one sermon reached the ear of one man, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, as he was known at that time. We we, we like to talk about the fact that Paul reached the entire known world with the gospel during his lifetime. But is it not true that Stephen also reached the entire known world because he's the one who reached the Apostle Paul, or at least had some kind of an influence in him? After Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, that same Saul of Tarsus, between the time he heard the gospel and the time that he finally surrendered to it and was saved, during that interim period, that same Saul of Tarsus began this systematic and terrible persecution of the church. The church of Jerusalem was broken up. It was scattered to the winds, silenced, it would seem. But then there's this in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching. The word. Gospel opportunity. Gospel opportunity. Paul said, my circumstances, while not good, are furthering the gospel. Second thing he mentioned was gospel influence in verse number 14. He said, my circumstances have emboldened many to preach the gospel. My circumstances have emboldened many to preach the gospel. One man said Paul's confinement was doing what his circumstances outside of prison could never do. When others saw how Paul was spreading the gospel even while he was imprisoned, it fired them up. It emboldened them to speak and to spread the gospel themselves. I don't think it's any secret that many believers struggle to share their faith. If I were to ask for a raise of hands in here this morning, I imagine many would raise their hands and say, yeah. It's undeniable that many are shy and many are afraid to witness. Yet the example of those who do share their faith, oftentimes emboldens even the shyest of us, doesn't it? We see somebody else do it, and it encourages us. It strengthens us. That's what happened here. They heard what Paul was enduring in prison, and it stirred them up. 
they saw and heard the amazing growth of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Perhaps they heard even the palace guard talking about it. And, and they were encouraged by what God was doing. And they were emboldened themselves. It gave them confidence. It encouraged them. It fired them up. I have never been what I think is a very strong witness for Christ. I say that to my shame, but it's the truth. There have just been too many occasions where the Lord has brought somebody onto my heart and mind and encouraged me to witness to them, and I walked away silently. I, 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 I confess that. But from time to time, God brings me into contact, and he's probably done the same thing to you, with someone that strengthens in that area. I think I've mentioned to you before a fellow by the name of John Rotilli. Did I ever mention John to you guys? John Rotilli was a, a fellow who was a member of the church where I served in New Jersey. He was a very nondescript guy. I don't think he had much education at all. He was kind of unkempt. He was Italian and spoke with a very, very thick accent. Uh, he's just not the kind of person that you would have expected to have tremendous influence. But John Rotilli was perhaps the greatest soul winner I've ever known in my life. No one escaped John Rotilli without hearing the gospel. It just, it just didn't happen. One time I had to go to a hospital visit with Brother John. I can't remember who we were visiting or anything about it other than I was going with Brother John. We went to the hospital, and we got to the elevator, and uh, we opened the elevator door, and we stepped in. And just as the elevator doors were closing, a woman stepped through. The doors closed. We started to go up. Silence. And I could feel. You know, you, you've been there. You could feel the Holy Spirit prompting you and saying, somebody ought to say something to this woman. Silence. And then all of a sudden, I heard Brother Rotilli clear his throat. And I learned later this is what he always did. Every time I was with him, he would do this. He'd clear his throat, and then he'd reach for a tract, and he handed this tract to this woman. He said, Man, can, can I give you this gospel tract? And she smiled at him, and she said, sure. <laughs> the elevator doors opened. We went on our way. And I was ashamed of myself, I have to confess. But at the same time, I was also emboldened by his example. And it emboldens me to this day. Have you had experiences like that where somebody else does it and it encourages you? I'm reminded of the death of Faramir. Remember Faramir in The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien? I don't know if you watched the movie or read the books. Either way, if you remember this particular scene, the noble Faramir was being destroyed by the orcs. And the feeble hobbits were looking on as arrow after arrow after arrow pierced Faramir's dying body. But he continued to fight. And then finally, they, emboldened by his dying efforts, unsheathed their swords with a huge scream and went tearing after. They were feeble. They couldn't do anything anyway. But they went because they were encouraged and emboldened to join the fight by his struggle. I think that's what we see here in the Apostle Paul. Recently, I read where several youths, and I think I alluded to it in a prayer a minute ago, several Christian youths were beheaded by ISIS. Why? Because they, were, they refused to renounce their Christian faith. Teenagers refusing to renounce their faith in Christ. Beheaded. But what does that do to you when you read something like that? Does it make you fear? Or does it embolden you? I don't imagine it emboldens all of us. Paul did not say here that everybody was. He said most were. Perhaps there's a little of both in all of us. Perhaps some of us, uh, there's a twinge of fear that comes from that. But the fact is, most were emboldened. The persecution of the church, the persecution of Christians down through history has resulted in the increase of the church. 
It was a church, it was a church theologian, Tertullian, who once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the, of the church. And so we see here gospel opportunity. We see here gospel influence. Paul said something else here in verses 15 through 17. He said the gospel is the thing. He said here, some preach the gospel from false motives. But who cares? They're preaching the gospel. Now, I find this passage a very interesting one. I've always struggled a little bit with this passage. These, these verses are a source of confusion to many because Paul mentions two groups of people here, two witnesses, two types of individuals uh, who had been emboldened by his situation and were preaching the gospel. In verse 15, he said one group preached from envy and strife. In verse number 16, he said they preached from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to his chains. In verse number 15, the other group preached from goodwill. Verse number 17, they preached out of love. Now, what's up with that other group? How do you explain that other group? Preaching the gospel out of envy. Preaching the gospel, trying to add affliction to Paul's chains. Who in the world were these guys that would preach this way? And what was the matter with them? Some have suggested they were false teachers. Perhaps the Judaizers that Paul had been standing up to all along, the ones who constantly wanted to add the Jewish law on top of the gospel. But that's not possible. These were not false teachers because Paul was content. Paul was rejoicing at the message they preached. He was mercilessly opposed at all times to false teaching. He had nothing good to say about it. And so they must have been doctrinally sound. And that makes it even more astonishing for me to think about who these guys were. They were, they were truly... Christians who were preaching the gospel, but for some reason they were doing so from bad motives. Paul called them brethren in the Lord in verse number 14. He plainly stated that they preach Christ in verse number 16. But for some reason they were at enmity with Paul. They preached with the poor motive of trying to cause him distress and pain, perhaps thinking that that would somehow elevate their success. I think this explanation is pretty good. I found this somewhere. Let me read what this fellow says about it. He quotes from William Hendrickson, who said, here's how he explains the first group. It should be borne in mind that there was a church in Rome long before Paul arrived there. It can scarcely be doubted, therefore, that certain preachers in Rome had attained a degree of prominence among the brothers. With the arrival of Paul, and especially with the spreading of his fame throughout the city, it is easy to understand that these leaders were beginning to lose some of their former prestige. Their names were no longer mentioned so often. Hence, they became envious of Paul. Their motives in preaching Christ were not pure or unmixed. These men evidently saw the imprisonment of Paul as their opportunity to come to the forefront again. They went about their preaching, therefore, with renewed vigor and zeal. And while Paul refuses to justify the envy of these men... He does take delight in the fact that they are vigorously preaching Christ. What a man this Paul is, even willing for others to speak ill of him if they would also speak well of Christ. To Paul, the gospel is the thing. And even more than that, to Paul, the gospel is everything. Look at verse number 18. I think verse number 18 is amazing. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Regardless of motive, 
the gospel was being preached. And that brought Paul joy. The gospel is everything. Some wanted their preaching to cause him distress, but it had the opposite effect. Because to Paul, the gospel was everything. So long as they were preaching Christ, Paul found joy in that preaching because the gospel is everything. Nothing else mattered. Paul's heart was not in building a crowd or a church. His heart was in spreading the gospel. The spread of the gospel was always at the center of everything he thought, everything he did, everything he felt. He said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He knew the gospel of God was the very power of God. Of God, It didn't matter who preached it. It didn't matter how they preached it, so long as they preached it. Because the power was not in the preacher. The power was in the gospel truth preached. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by a whole host of people. And so there He says, this is the Gospel. This is what I declare to you, that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, that He rose again, and He was seen by a whole host of witnesses. And then He says, I delivered that to you first of all. Some translations translate that as, as of first importance. I delivered this Gospel message to you as of First important, nothing else, nothing else is as important as the gospel. It's first. Nothing else mattered to him in that prison cell. Nothing else matters to us today. The gospel is everything. Say that with me. The gospel is everything. Well, let me share just a couple thoughts about how we might apply these things. We've seen the gospel opportunity, gospel influence. The gospel is the thing, and it's, it's everything. But how do we apply that this morning? Let me just, in no particular order, make a couple of comments, and then we're done. First of all, just because we can't see light at the end of the tunnel does not mean God has abandoned us. Just because we cannot see light at the end of the tunnel does not mean God has abandoned us. Paul was in prison. He spent every minute of every day chained to a guard. Imagine that. Imagine the inconvenience of that. Imagine the unpleasantness of that. Imagine the humiliation of that. Use your imagination a little bit. Think about that. Every minute of every day. And the Philippians were very concerned and thought he was in a bad way, but God was working. Just because we can't see light at the end of the tunnel doesn't mean God has abandoned us. God was working. Even in that. How do you explain somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata? Johnny, who has spent her entire adult life in constant pain, in a wheelchair, unable to move at all. If you only looked at her suffering, you might question why God would allow it. But if you look at how she has been so mightily used to spread the gospel from that wheelchair, and in spite of that pain, you can't help but see God knew exactly what he was doing in putting her there. Some years ago, I attended a series of meetings at uh, what was then New Milford Baptist Church, now Grace Church. I, I remember the evangelist who spoke at those meetings. I remember that he could barely walk. I remember he was very crippled up. I don't know what was wrong with him, but he could barely walk. 
I think he had to be assisted to get up on the platform. I remember that he spoke even with great difficulty. He had a very weird speech impediment that took me halfway through a sermon to figure him out. But then once I figured him out, he really spoke to my heart. And God powerfully used this guy in spite of all these things. Elizabeth Elliot said, I am not a theologian or a scholar, but I am very aware of the fact that pain is necessary to all of us. In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence of God and the love of God. Elizabeth Elliot, who watched her husband martyred by those they had gone to witness to. One man said, we cannot always trace the hand of God, but we can always trust the heart of God. His heart is devoted to working all things together for good for his people. There are no accidents with God. God is never out of control. Nothing ever surprises God. What we think of as a setback is not such with God. He is always working, even when it looks like he is not, to advance his gospel through us. Second thought that I would share with you is this. Wherever we are, we can be a witness. Wherever we are. One man said Paul's example teaches us to view every situation in which we find ourselves as an opportunity for spreading the gospel. With this in mind, the Christian can, for example, see a hospital bed as a pulpit and the hospital as a mission field. Warren Wiersbe said the secret is this. When you have the single mind, you look on your circumstances as God-given opportunities for the furtherance of the gospel and you rejoice at what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God did not do. That one convicts me. Wherever we are, we can be a witness. Number three, when we stay strong and stand for Christ, others are emboldened to do the same. Others are watching you. Others are watching me. Oh, we must never lose sight of that. Others will be strengthened and encouraged and emboldened if we stay the course. And I think also just the opposite if we crumble under trial. Think of the influence of a suffering believer who stays the course and stands strong and comes back out to the other side. Think back through your life of the many believers you've been privileged to know. No doubt there are some who have gone through some rough spots and yet come out the other side still standing. And no doubt there are some who have gone through similarly rough spots and absolutely collapsed under the trial. Think of how they each influenced you. In the same way others watch us, how we handle difficulties and trials in our life. Do we stand or do we collapse? Number four, there will always be good and bad examples in men. And I have to say it again, because in our ridiculous age, we have all this gender nonsense. I have to point this out, ladies. You're not excluded from this. Men means you too. Mankind. People. There will always be good and bad examples. We cannot allow our eyes to be diverted from the goal, which is keeping the gospel central by being drawn into watching men. And yet it happens all the time. What men do does not matter. Too many are taken out of the fight because they got their eyes off Christ, they got their eyes off the gospel, and are looking at some bad man or bad men, such as these who here preached for wrong motives. There will always be. Paul's example should help us overlook the faults and frailties and foibles of those who are preaching the gospel and concentrate on the gospel that they are preaching. The gospel is the source of power not the preacher. The gospel is powerful enough to overshadow and rise above anybody, whether they be good or bad. 
there will always be good and bad examples of men. Number five, the only thing that matters is the gospel. The only thing. And I know this is redundant with stuff we've said, but it's the key to the whole passage, and so I'm going to hammer it a little bit. The only thing that matters is the gospel. Everything else is secondary. Paul stated this other places as well. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said something similar here in just a few verses yet. We'll probably talk about this next week. Verse 21, he said, for to, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. My whole life is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what he was saying. His freedom was secondary. His comfort was secondary. His fame and prestige was secondary. Nothing else mattered but the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can't leave this passage without asking the question, is this our heart? Is this my heart? Is this your heart? I think such a gospel-focused heart comes from a mind that is focused on eternity, a mind that takes the long view, a mind that's looking forward to the restoration of all things. Who was I talking to this morning that was telling I think it was you, Brother Bob, was telling me that since Brother Jimmy DeYoung was here, I can't stop thinking about the rapture. Well, I can't either. And I've heard a few others say the same thing. We need to be thinking that way. We take that long view, and then suddenly the gospel becomes the most important. You know, Paul didn't have a bucket list of things that he was trying to accomplish in this life before he died. He didn't have a long list of sights he wanted to see and pleasures he wanted to enjoy before he died because he knew all that stuff could wait. There's coming a day when God is going to remake everything, and we can worry about that stuff then. He knew that the time now needed to be spent focused not on the pleasures of this life, but on the gospel. Everything else could wait doesn't mean we have to be preachers and missionaries and that kind of thing to have that kind of a mind. It just means that our minds, our hearts are focused on the gospel as the number one thing. Our hearts are focused on getting the gospel to everyone we can, however we can, is the number one thing. For a lot of people, you know what that means? That means just bringing people to church. That's all it means. For a lot of people, that means just letting other people see you going to church. That means when family and friends come to visit you on a Sunday... That they, and they say, I don't want to go to church with you. You say, okay, well, fine. The coffee's on. We'll see you when we get back. That they see you going to church. For a lot of people, it just simply means letting other people know that they are not more important than Jesus Christ in your life. Nothing is more important than Jesus Christ in your life. The gospel is the thing. It is everything. I mean, think about what Jesus said. Jesus said nothing is more important than the good news of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Not family, not spouses, not children, not jobs, not sports, not vacations, not health, not anything. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's an astonishing verse. In some ways, it's a horrifying verse. But he was not telling us to hate our families. He was telling us that the gospel is everything. It is the only thing that matters. What he was telling us is we get that right, and everything else falls into place. Number six, and with a I close. Getting these things right in our hearts and minds, especially getting the centrality of the gospel right, will bring us joy. It will bring us joy. Remember the theme of the book of Philippians, joy. 
And notice what he said in verse number 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with joy, as we've talked about for the last few weeks, you will never run out of joy if, like the Apostle Paul, the gospel is at the center of your life. Well, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for these truths. I pray you'd speak to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that if there's a particular application to anybody in this room, that you would make it. I pray the Holy Spirit would speak to us all right now. I know you have spoken to me as I've prepared and thought through these things. Uh, I, I just pray that you'd help me to once again rededicate myself to the fact that gospel is the central thing. Uh, help us to learn from the Apostle Paul. And I pray, Lord, if there are those here today who have never responded to the gospel in the first place, they've never trusted Jesus as their Savior. If they were to die today, they don't know for certain whether they go to heaven or not. All, that, all that's just mumbo-jumbo to them. They, they don't know what it means. And I pray this day, Lord, as we sing, they would step out, they would come to the front, let someone take the Bible and show them how they can understand the gospel, know the gospel, and respond to the gospel and be saved. Lord, I pray that first and above everything else. And then I pray, Lord, for those amongst us who are Christians, the majority of people in this room who have trusted Jesus as Savior. I pray for those who perhaps have allowed other things to enter into their mind and into their heart, which has perhaps displaced the centrality of these things. Help us, Father, to be a gospel people. Help us to care about gospel growth. Help us to care more about that than anything else. And I just pray you would just convict our hearts, convict my heart, convict us, Lord, and help us if we need to make decisions, if we need to come and kneel at this altar and say, Lord, forgive me, I have allowed that to slip in my life. Uh, I just pray we do it. And so whatever you're speaking to our hearts about today, help us to respond. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.